I want to read verses 46 through 54. <clears throat> this is the inerrant word of God written for us. So Jesus came again to Cana of Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And there was a certain nobleman whose son was sick at Capernaum. When he heard that Jesus had come out of Judea into Galilee, he went to him and implored him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. Then Jesus said to him, Unless you people see signs and wonders, you will by no means believe. The nobleman said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go your way, your son lives. So the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him, and he went his way. And he was, as he was now going down, his servants met him and told him, saying, Your son lives. Then he inquired of them the hour when he got better. And they said to him, Yesterday at the seventh hour the fever left him. So the father knew that it was at the same hour when Jesus had said to him, Your son lives. And he himself believed and his whole household. This again is the second sign Jesus did when he came out of Judea into Galilee. Amen. Father God, we come to your word and we uh, reverence it. It is our desire to live in terms of it. I pray that you would anoint my lips and enable me to free, uh, preach your word and to apply it uh, in, a, in a, a godly way. And I pray each one of us would be given the grace of hearing and of doing. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. All of the uh, elder candidates have been reading as their last book, and they're probably uh, glad to be on their last book. They've had a pile of reading. But uh, they've been reading a book that was recommended by uh, George Grant and Calcedon Foundation and a number of other organizations as being, uh, if not the best book on missions, one of the best books uh, on missions. And um, uh, it has been incredibly uh, challenging to me. Uh, Douglas Layton, Our Father's Kingdom, I highly, highly recommend it. it uh, I think describes very well our nation discipling perspective that this church has held to right from the beginning. And as I was reading through that, there were points in there where I was just sobbing with joy at the things that God was doing, but also mixed in there was a little bit of sorrow at the shallowness of my faith. Uh, this is a guy like Peter Hammond who is right out there on the front lines of the battlefield getting thrown into jail, getting beaten up by Muslims. Um, for preaching the gospel and uh, uh, Hindus and others where he has ministered. And yet, because he has been willing to go into the land of the giants like Joshua and Caleb, the Lord has opened up astonishing uh, ministry in his life. And it's, it's fun reading, actually. I would encourage you guys to uh, get that book. And I think most people would not even dream... Uh, uh, you know, as being something, they wouldn't even dream of, of the kinds of things that this guy is uh, actually accomplishing. And yet I think uh, over and over, this person is a, seeing nation-discipling ministries happening before his very eyes because the whole team is gripped by a faith that this is what we should expect. This is what God has commanded. This is what God has planned. And how should we engage in anything less than nation-discipling? Now, even our congregation, I don't think, has uh, faith to enter into some of the ventures that this guy is entering into, and that's okay, because God takes us where we're at, and I think little by little, he challenges and he increases our faith step by step. <clears throat> In fact, uh, I was commenting to my brother John 
about the incredible faith of uh, this guy I was mentioning, George uh, Mueller, and he said, you know what, George Mueller did not uh, uh, have that faith overnight. He grew into it. In fact, when he began his Christian life, uh, he had rather weak faith, uh, if you read his biography, but he continually grew in his faith into a great man of faith because he was always living in the realm of faith. And uh, one of the principles that I want you to remember throughout this uh, sermon is that we will never become men and women of faith if we are not constantly living in the realm of faith. Let me repeat that. We will never become men and women of faith if we are not constantly living in the realm of faith, walking in the realm of faith. And I'll explain what that means here in a, in, in a minute. But first of all, I, I just want to mention that we do grow in faith. Some people look at faith as if you either have it or you don't have it, but you do grow in faith. There are degrees of faith. Matthew 6, verse 30 speaks of little faith. And you probably remember that uh, phrase over and over, O ye of little faith. Uh, Peter had little faith, and you remember what Jesus said, even if you have faith as small as a grain of mustard seed, you can move mountains. And his little faith enabled him to walk on the water, you know, when Jesus called him to. He didn't presume to. He said, Lord, you've got to invite me first. Once Jesus invites him, he goes and he walks on the water. That was a little faith. Um, well, that was probably a little bit growth of faith there. But Second Thessalonians 1.3 says, your faith is growing more and more. And that should be true of every one of us. There should never be a time when we are not growing into new levels of faith. Matthew 8.10 speaks of great faith. 2 Corinthians 8.7 says you abound in faith. Romans 4.20 says of Abraham that he was strengthened in faith. So here's a, a guy who's considered to be the model of faith, and yet he uh, had to be strengthened in faith. And so there are various levels, and we may wish we could dive right into the level of faith that George Mueller had, or that we could exercise the, the prayer authority and the kind of ministries that maybe some other person or some other individual has entered into. But God ordinarily causes us to grow into those areas step at a time, beginning with faithfulness for where we're at right now. And I believe that the Lord's ushering Dominion Covenant Church into some new territories that are going to stretch our faith and uh, challenge us to depend upon Him, whether it's talking about coming up with, uh, you know, a new pastor, the finances required for that, and other ministries, uh, some of the ministry things that will be thrust upon us. I think the Lord is challenging us in this area of faith, and I hope that uh, this sermon is an encouragement there. Now, you might think this is a rather strange uh, passage to use to be teaching on uh, what I'm going to be teaching on today, but I have picked it because it's one of many passages that show all of these steps of faith, but I picked it because I think uh, it, it, it's a passage our church can relate to where we're at, and I'll explain that a little bit more detail later on. And the first thing we see here is that this nobleman had a sense of his need. His need was a sickness that the Lord had brought into his child's life. And before we even get into the text, let me admonish you not to think of needs as bad things. We're scared to death of needs. 
We do everything that we can to avoid the discomfort, you know, of being in a position of, of being needy and not in total control of everything that's going on. But I hope to convince you this morning that apart from needs, a sense of need, we will not be able to have faith. It's absolutely foundational to a walk of faith. Now, some of you might say, well, if that's the case, I don't want to be a man or a woman of faith. But many of you are going to be thrilled because you're going to realize, hey, I am already qualified, you know, on this first step to this walk of faith because I'm an incredibly messed up, needy person. I need the Lord desperately. And that is an encouragement, you know, that the Lord says, when you begin to sense your need, you're in a perfect position to grow in faith, to become a man or a woman of faith. Hebrews 11 gives us part of the definition of faith that it's the title deed of things hoped for right? Now, if you're hoping for it, you don't have it right now, right? You have a need and you're waiting for that need to be fulfilled. And so a need is always there. Uh, if we sense little need of God in our lives, then there will be little call for faith in our lives. Now, on the other hand, if God has instilled in your heart such a burden for our church to be involved in ministries that only God's grace can achieve it because it's way beyond our abilities. Or if he has put upon your heart a burden for seeing God's power and God's ministry and presence in your life that takes you way beyond your resources to minister, then you are going to be thrust into the, the realm of, of faith. And if uh, you're just satisfied with the status quo, you don't really care about growing in those areas and being challenged in those areas, God is forced to bring things like he brought into the nobleman's life so that you have to have a life of faith. Because God says, well, in Hebrews he says, without faith it's impossible to please God. And God's going to guarantee he's going to be pushing you, if you are the elect, into faith in one way or another. He's going to make that dependency felt. So let's take a look, beginning at verses 46 through 47. There was a wealthy man. He had very few needs until the Lord brought this need into his life. So Jesus came again to Cana of Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And there was a certain nobleman whose son was sick at Capernaum. When he heard that Jesus had come out of Judea and to Galilee, he went to him and implored him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. It was sickness that made him come to Jesus, and God many a time has to cause some kind of a calamity to come into the lives of his immature sons and daughters so that we will sense that we are in desperate need of the Lord, and it causes our faith to grow. Um, it doesn't have to be that way because Abraham, as I've mentioned before, was an incredibly wealthy person. Uh, he had all kinds of resources at, at his disposal, and yet he was a man who was rich in faith. In fact, he's the model of faith. But the reason that Abraham had so much faith is he had a steward's heart. He recognized the Lord has given. The Lord could take away at any time. He trusted the Lord with the things that he had presently, but he also used those things to cause him to go into new ventures before the Lord, to trust the Lord, to go beyond his comfort zone. I mean, even at the beginning, when he was first saved, God calls him to move and to go, but he doesn't tell him where he is going. And Abraham says, okay. And he picks up, packs up all of his stuff, and he moves. Would you be able to do that? 
That'd be an incredibly intimidating thing to just say, move, and you start moving and say, okay, Lord, where do I go next? And yet Abraham was able to do that because he was willing to go outside of his comfort zone. In this case, his comfort zone was wanting to know the future, and God says, I'm not going to give it to you. Now, in contrast, many times we're not willing to do the things we know God wants us to do because we want to have more information about the future. We've got to have our plan all put together. We've got to have everything in a neat box before we will step out. And God says, no, I'm not going to give you all the information. If I did, there would be no need for faith. I want you to step outside of your comfort zones. He wants you to be a man or a woman of faith far more than he wants you to be a comfortable man or a comfortable woman. And uh, Hebrews tells us again, without faith, it is impossible to please God. So I don't want you to brush over this point lightly and say, oh, okay, well, yeah, academically, I, I can recognize this. I want you to wrestle with this. For some of you, needs do not energize you to excitement and faith in what God is doing. Instead, it takes the wind out of your sails. And let me tell you why it takes the wind out of your sails. It's because... It is challenging, and it's a hindrance to what you can accomplish in your own strength. But that's the whole point of why God is bringing these needs into your life, is to make you begin to trust in Him instead of scrambling on your own. Now, this is why Christ indicated that wealth is frequently antithetical to faith. Um, he said it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to come to faith for a rich man to believe, which means it's impossible, right? You can't get a camel through the eye of the needle. But the Lord says immediately after that, but with God, all things are, are possible. So he says he can. And the Lord has caused many rich people to be rich in faith as well. <clears throat> and and uh, because he is the God of impossibilities. But the point is that wealth can be a hindrance to faith because we don't sense a need. Anytime we have a need, we just write a check. You know, we take care of it. We're in control. We don't feel like things are falling apart on us. And so we, in this church, have a hindrance to faith that needs to be guarded against. And you might say, now, wait a shake. I'm poor. I'm not rich. I think even the poorest among us is quite rich compared to the Ethiopians I grew up with. Uh, quite rich compared to the average person out in, uh, you know, the Middle East at the time of Christ. Uh, just, just think of um, the time of Christ, and the average nobleman um, was not always able to afford being able to be carried about in a litter, you know, having four men carry him about. But you had to be pretty rich to do that, and yet I think most of you have cars, or some of you wish you had cars and uh, don't yet, uh, but that's because uh, you're a little bit young. But that's your servant, okay? You've hired a servant there, and you've got uh, people to cut wood for you and uh, stoke your fires. That's the electricity, and that's the natural gas that comes piped into your house. That takes care of servants. And you've got a person that runs across town to deliver a message for you. That's the telephone. And even if you're complaining that your house is small, compare it to the one-room houses that most people in the world have to live in if they're lucky enough to have a house and you realize, yes, comparatively speaking, we are rather rich. We don't have a lot of needs. Now, there are needs there that can still challenge us to faith. But the point is, we are in the position, as Mark 10 says, we're in the position of the nobleman where we're going to be having a temptation to depend upon our own resources rather than depending upon the Lord Jesus Christ for our business, for whatever it may be. 
And so it's just that we've got something to guard against. Now, here's the exciting part. Once you've learned to walk by faith, God doesn't have to bring those physical uh, difficulties into your life because you're learning to trust him all through those things. In fact, those very blessings that the Lord brings into your life are things that are going to usher you into higher levels of trust and higher levels of ministry. So don't be ashamed of the wealth. There are blessings from God's hand, but just keep in mind always, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. You've got to have a, an attitude of dependence even for the keeping of those blessings that God has put there. And on this first point, what I want to challenge you to, to do is to seek God's face for a greater vision of what you are supposed to do. There should never be a time in the Christian's life where he is not stretched beyond his comfort zone into the realm of neediness. And I think uh, frequently the, the problem with us is that um, we're quite satisfied with the status quo. You know, we've arrived. Maybe we've been challenged in faith before, and we've grown to an area where we're just coasting. We're quite satisfied with the status quo. And uh, if we saw God's calling upon Dominion Covenant Church, God's calling upon your family, I'm convinced you would be thrust into such a sense of, of hopelessness in yourself, but dependence upon the Lord, that it would cause you to taste much more richly of His grace. That's the, that's the whole key to this point. And so you have needs? Praise God. You already had the first prerequisite to, to getting where George Mueller got. Uh, you have a burden that uh, the Lord has placed upon your life for ministry, going to seminary, whatever it may be, and you wonder, how in the world am I going to get the cash to do this? How in the world am I going to enter into this? You need to say, praise the Lord. I'm exactly where God needs me to be so that I can be a man of faith or a woman of faith. Now, the second step is to seek God's face in prayer. You will never grow in faith if you do not grow in prayer. Now, this is a second point that's going to make some of you uncomfortable. But take a look at verse 47. <clears throat> when he heard that Jesus had come out of Galilee and, uh, Judea into Galilee, he went to him and implored him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. He's basically praying. He's praying to Jesus, asking Jesus to minister to his need. And it took some time out of his schedule, some energy. It took some uh, sacrifice, just as it takes time and energy and sacrifice for us to engage in prayer. But let me tell you, without prayer, we're not going to grow in faith. It's an absolutely essential step. Now, here's the problem. Many of us do sense our need. The uh, Lord's already taken care of point number one. Uh, we've been given a burden for ministry that's just way beyond our resources. And rather than going to point two, what we immediately do is we start frantically working, frantically trying to add more hours to our schedule, scheming, begging other people to come alongside and help because we realize we don't have what it takes to be able to accomplish what God is calling us to. And... Uh, uh, even though faith must be active, and we'll get to that in a moment, its core, its core is dependence upon Christ. If we can do it ourselves, where is the need for faith? If we can do it ourselves, where is the need for faith? And so let the burden and the need of point one drive you to prayer. Because if your burden has really been given by the Lord, you're not going to be able to accomplish it in your own strength anyway. So don't worry when you fail, right? Go to the Lord to accomplish it on your next try. God's callings upon our lives are way beyond our own strength, and the burdens should drive us to seek Him 
to accomplish His work. Hebrews 11.6 But without faith it is impossible to please Him, for he who comes to God must believe that He is and that He is the rewarder of those who do what? Diligently seek Him. Of those who diligently seek Him. Uh, there is diligence involved, but it's not the kind of diligence I like to engage in. The first intuitive, obvious thing that comes to my mind is work. I love to work. I'm, you know, I just, I, I dive into action, but God says no. Yes, there is action and that comes later, but the first and foremost prerequisite is that you have a dependence upon me, that you seek my face. We may do the same thing with faith or without faith. Let me just give you a silly, regular, daily example. Kathy may be in the kitchen doing dishes, or Ruth. Ruth does a lot of dishes. She may be in the kitchen doing dishes, and she could uh, either do it, you know, with a, a bad attitude and feeling badly about what's going on, or she could do it with joy of the Lord, doing it as unto Him, as an act of service to Him, and come out of it feeling quite different, but you can do the same thing by faith or without faith, even on a simple task like that. But we need to remember, Scripture says, with, um, that which is not of faith is sin. It's got to be driven by faith. And uh, the, the New Testament indicates we don't just get saved by faith. It says the just shall live by faith. So let me read that Hebrews passage again. Without faith it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, that he is the rewarder of those who diligently seek him. And so my second question to you this morning is, are you seeking the face of the Lord? What is your prayer life like? Because your prayer life is an indicator of where your faith is at. What is your prayer life like? Do you depend upon yourself first and foremost, or do you depend upon the Lord? I'm praying that God would give us a burden and a vision that is so huge that we would see our need, point one. A vision that is so huge it would drive us to prayer, point number two, and a dependence upon the Lord. And uh, in, in terms of the church, you know, some people say, well, you know, in terms of our budget, how in the world will we be able to afford to bring on a pastor? Um, you know, is the finances for a pastor uh, something that is impossible? Well, not if we are seeking the one who owns all things and who dispenses and who pays for what he orders. This is a sign. This will be a sign from the Lord. You know, is the Lord in this or is he not? That should be an encouragement. Okay, point number three is a confidence in his words, in, this, in his word, in the specifics of our life. And this deals with guidance, and I want to give an entire sermon on guidance as a part of this little mini-series that we're going to go through. When Jesus said to him, go your way, your son lives, he was able to go with a confidence in what Jesus would do. And it's a God-given confidence. It's not something we can work up within ourselves like the name it and claim it types sometimes do. Uh, it's totally God-given. Let me define faith so you can see what we're talking about here. Faith is said to be, quote, the mysterious surge of confidence which arises within a person as he claims God's word for a specific situation or need and becomes certain of God's answer. In fact, to me, this is almost equivalent, this faith concept is almost equivalent to the guidance uh, that uh, the Lord so frequently gives. The mysterious surge of confidence which arises within a person 
as he claims God's word for a specific situation or need and becomes certain of God's answer. Now, that need may not be fulfilled yet, but if God has given his order in the heavenlies, many times the Lord will give quick into our hearts that certainty, that faith, that assurance that the Lord is going to do uh, what he has already decreed. Now, let's look at this aspect of faith in the nobleman. He starts off with a lower level of faith, because I think he was already a believer. He was already believing when he comes to Jesus. Otherwise, why come to Jesus? He had hopes Jesus was going to heal his son, right? And so he asked Christ to come. And what Jesus does is he changes the plans of the nobleman, and he wants the nobleman, instead of him going to the house there, he wants the nobleman to believe based merely on his assurance that his son will be healed. That's what he wants him to do. Now, Christ knew the other Jews there were not... Uh, believers, he says, unless you people, and this is the plural, he's not talking just to the noblemen, unless you people see signs and wonders, you will by no means believe. It's very easy to believe in a miracle if you've already seen the miracle happen. What's hard to believe is that God's going to pull through on something where your neck is on the line right now, and you don't see it. And yet the Lord has given an assurance that he will provide. That's what's the difficult thing to do. It's not hard to believe in a miracle once you've already seen it. Uh, when you look at men of faith like George Mueller, what you see in their lives is a God-given assurance that the Lord has already answered the prayer. And this assurance enables them to stop praying and begin to rejoice, to begin to praise God for the answer to that prayer. Verse 50 says... Jesus said to him, go your way, your son lives. Now, he hadn't seen the miracle yet. He hadn't even seen the miracle yet. But once the assurance is given, there's no more need for prayer. You can go your way. Now, this subjective aspect of um, assurance is, is an aspect of faith. Now, there is debate on that. Uh, but uh, Kelvin and uh, especially the, the Dutch Reformed, they were firmly convinced assurances of the essence uh, of faith. Now, here are some other people's definitions of this level of faith. Dunn says, it gives the person a transrational certainty. Transrational means it goes beyond what you can figure out on your own, beyond mere deduction. It gives a person a transrational certainty and assurance that God is about to act through a word or action. Flynn says, it is a spirit-given ability to see something that God wants done and to sustain unwavering confidence that God will do it regardless of seemingly insurmountable obstacles. And you know, I've talked to some of you who have uh, what you believe is a burden from the Lord and you are faced with seemingly insurmountable obstacles and I want to encourage you to faith because if this truly is of the Lord, the Lord can climb every one of those mountains that comes before you. Now, let me illustrate this um, aspect of assurance before we see anything tangible from a story from George Mueller's life. And um, uh, I should mention before this, this wasn't always the case with George Mueller. There were many times where he would pray and pray and pray for a long period of time before God gave him that assurance that God had answered gave him that faith. And there were times where God gave him an assurance that he shouldn't pray. This is not even God's will to pray when people asked him to pray. But this was rather unusual. It was so quick. It was so sudden in his life. But I, I guess I shouldn't say it was unusual. There were other stories like that. But this came from a captain of a ship on which George Mueller was traveling. 
the captain said, we had George Mueller of Bristol on board. I had been on the bridge for 24 hours and never left it, and George Mueller came to me and said, Captain, I've come to tell you I must be in Quebec on Saturday afternoon. It is impossible, I said. Then very well, if your ship cannot take me, God will find some other way. I've never broken an engagement in 57 years. Let us go down into the chart room and pray. I looked at that man of God and thought to myself, what lunatic asylum can that man have come from? For I never heard of such a thing as this. Mr. Mueller, I said, do you not know how dense this fog is? No, he replied. My eye is not on the density of the fog, but on the living God who controls every circumstance of my life. He knelt down and he prayed one of the most simple prayers. When he had finished, I was going to pray, but he put his hand on my shoulder and told me not to pray. As you do not believe, he will answer, and as I believe he has, there is no need whatever for you to pray about it. <laughs> I looked at him, and George Mueller said, Captain, I have known my Lord for 57 years, and there has never been a single day when I have failed to get an audience with the king. Get up, Captain, and open the door, and you will find the fog is gone. I got up, and the fog indeed was gone, and on that Saturday afternoon, George Mueller kept his promised engagement. Now, do keep in mind that there are different levels of faith. And I think he had a special gift of faith. There is a difference. Not everybody has the gift of faith. But what I do want to illustrate with that is all faith has this character to some degree. It may be at a much lesser level, but all faith has this character. Um, once the assurance was given to this nobleman, it would have been foolish for the nobleman to say, Oh, please, Lord, heal my son. Look, Lord says, I already said he's healed. Oh, Lord, please come and heal my son. If he keeps begging over and over and praying, uh, there'd be something a little bit strange with that. In fact, it would border on the disobedience, wouldn't it? And so we need to recognize and expect from the Lord that the Lord will minister by his supernatural grace, faith within us. Faith is a gift of God. It's not something we generate from within. I've had times... Um, in the ministry of this church where we've called our family, not the whole church, but our family to fasting. And we were planning to extend the fasting for a longer period. But in the middle of it, I just had such an overwhelming joy and assurance from the Lord that he'd already answered the prayer that I told our family, the fast is off. I believe the Lord's answered. We're going to celebrate and feast. And sure enough, the Lord had answered. It's just something that comes from God. Uh, and uh, is an encouragement to his people. Now, all is guided by the word, but John Calvin points out that faith is that deep-seated, God-given assurance that goes beyond mere deduction. You can have deductions from the Scripture, but your name is not written in Scripture, and some of the specifics of your life are not written in the Scripture, and so you can't leap from that deduction of a general theory to your particular life without that God-given faith taking it from the Scripture to the specifics of life. So let me give those definitions again. Faith is the mysterious surge of confidence which arises within a person as he claims God's word for a specific situation or need and becomes certain of God's answer. Here's the second one. It gives the person a transrational certainty and assurance that God is about to act through a word or action. And here is the third one. It is a spirit-given ability to see something that God wants done and to sustain unwavering confidence that God will do it regardless of seemingly insurmountable obstacles. And so don't confuse this with presumption. Presumption is where 
you're, you're, you're expecting God to do something you want, but not something that God has led on. Okay? There's a difference between God saying, here's the direction you need to go, and he gives you an assurance based on his word that he's going to provide, and saying, I want such and such, I want a pink Cadillac or whatever, and by golly, I'm going to, uh, excuse me, forgive me, Lord, that is a, I'm sorry, Lord, that is uh, not an appropriate word, but I'm going to trust the Lord to give me a pink Cadillac. That is not, that is not right. In case you were wondering what I was saying, that, um, that word is um, a minced oath, and it's not appropriate. And uh, as I mentioned, this is one of the differences between uh, Calvin and the, the, uh, the Puritans in Europe and the Puritans in England. The Puritans in England uh, didn't hold as strongly to that, that uh, assurance being of the essence of faith. But Calvin said, it's of the essence of faith. It's, it's, it's always there. Now, the next step is critical as well. We are to act upon God's assurance. This is, I think, uh, another point at which people balk. Verse 50. Jesus said to him, Go your way, your son lives. So the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him, and he went his way. He went his way. There was action that was needed. Now, Joshua had faith to believe that God could part the Jordan River, and uh, he had that faith before the Jordan was parted. But when did the Jordan get parted? It was when he put that faith into action and he stepped into the water. The action is needed. And now some years ago, I gave an illustration. I applied it to salvation faith, and uh, I think it applies to all faith. So I'm going to use it again here. And I don't know if I gave this at Dominion. I think I probably gave it at, um, at uh, Trinity Presbyterian. But uh, it's the tightrope artist Blondin. I don't know if this rings a bell. Um, he put on an exhibition at Niagara Falls, and he stretched a wire across the falls. He walked across there. He did a backward somersault. Some people are nodding that this, uh, this rings a bell, this story. I sometimes forget which illustrations I've used and which ones I haven't. He walked across on stilts. He took a, uh, a stove across, and he... Uh, tilted on two legs of a chair, and he cooked himself a meal, and he ate it out. He did all kinds of neat things out there. And then as the finale, he took a specially made wheelbarrow, and he wheeled that up to the audience on one side, and he asked them, do you think I could wheel this across? Oh, yeah, no problem. Do you think I could put a person inside? And everybody was assenting, yes, yes, you could do this. And there was one kid who was particularly strong and cheering, and he said, Sonny, do you think I could take you across in this wheelbarrow? Yes, sir. Well, good, hop in and I'll take you. No, sir. <laughs> there was no way he was going to hop into that wheelbarrow and go to the other side of that uh, chasm. He had faith to believe that Blondin could do it in general, in theory, but he did not have a faith to believe that made any difference in his own life that would enable him to entrust his life to Blondin's hands. And we can have faith that God will do, you know, great things through the church in general. You know, that's a theory, that's a doctrine, whether it's post-millennialism or something else. We can believe God will do something great, you know, through a dominion covenant church, but it's not until we take action, we get into the wheelbarrow, we trust God in those uncomfortable situations that we have what the Scripture says is faith. <clears throat> 
Why don't you turn with me to Hebrews chapter 11. Whenever God leads, whenever he gives them guidance, they must act upon the guidance or no more guidance will be given. It's just the way that works. And Hebrews chapter 11, I think, is a very pointed chapter that shows that there is action that is always involved in faith. This is the faith chapter in the scripture. Okay, Hebrews chapter 11, he first of all defines faith in verses 1 through 3. Then he gives illustrations of faith. Verse 4, by faith Abel offered. And I'm just going to point out some of the verbs here. Verse 6, there's the verbs, he who comes, seek him. Verse 7, by faith Noah was moved. He prepared an ark. Those are action verbs. Uh, take a look down at verse 8. By faith Abraham obeyed. Uh, he, it says, go out. He went out. Verse 9, by faith he dwelt. See, what are some others here? Verse 11, by faith Sarah herself also received strength. Uh, verse 17, by faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And then again, the verb offered up. Verse 20, by faith Isaac blessed Jacob. Verse 21, blessed each of the sons. Uh, verse 22, by faith he made mention. Verse 23, by faith was hidden. Uh, ref verse 24, refused to be called. Choosing, verse 25, by faith he forsook Egypt, for he endured. Verse 28, by faith he kept the Passover. Verse 29, by faith they passed through. Uh, let's just read verses 33 through 35, a great summary. Who through faith subdued kingdoms, worked righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, became valiant in battle, turned to flight the armies of the aliens, etc., etc. I hope you can see faith without action, as James says, is dead faith. It's not real, it's counterfeit. And so this is an absolutely essential essential step. The moment God gives the assurance, faith lets us take action for his kingdom. Now, my brother pointed out to me this past week that ordinarily God chooses to open up the finances, the resources, the people, the things that are needed for ministry as we get ourselves involved in that ministry. It's not when we're theoretically saying, okay, Lord, once you open the door and once you provide everything so that I'm comfortable, then I'll walk into the ministry. God says, no, no. If I'm calling you, I want you to walk and trust me to, to stand there. For example, some people are saying, Lord, I want a witness, but I'm a terrible witness. I go into it with fear and trembling. And it's in the act of witnessing with fear and trembling that God many times gives that courage. Okay, so action is such an important part, but it's action after we have depended upon the Lord. It cannot be reversed. And that's one of the reasons I gave the Leighton book, uh, because I think it so well illustrates uh, these things that the Lord opened up. It was at the point that he begins to engage in things that are impossible, that look foolish from man's perspective, that the Lord opened up uh, one miraculous thing after another. So our vision is way too small if, um, if it's a, a, a vision that seems easy to act on, but our vision is, uh, uh, our, our faith is way too weak if we're not actually taking the action. So this brings us to point five. Faith grows as it gives glory to God. 
It's God-focused. Now, unfortunately, what many people substitute for faith gives glory to us. It doesn't give glory to God. It gives glory to us. At the bottom of your discussion questions page is a quote that says, to believe only possibilities is not faith, but mere philosophy. I believe that the Lord is glorified through the the vision uh, that this church has. I believe it's a God-engendered vision, and uh, when it is accomplished, no man will get the glory because it's obvious only God can achieve those things. But the nobleman did not want to attribute this to fluke chance, to natural healing, to anything else. The moment he gets home, he checks. What's the hour? And the fact that John reports it here is a hint that he had reported it to the whole church. John came to know, well, God could have revealed it directly, but he probably came to know through the church. This person got healed at that exact hour. And so verses 52 through 53, Then he inquired of them the hour when he got better, and they said to him, Yesterday at the seventh hour the fever left him. So the father knew that it was at the same hour in which Jesus said to him, Your son lives, and he himself believed in his whole his whole household. <clears throat> now, there are many different ways in which we can rob God of the glory. Uh, one of the ways that I have read, uh, it's not just secular people, it's uh, Christians who have written books that I have read that do their utmost to explain away all miracles. Um, and if they cannot explain it away, it just looks like a miracle. There, there seems no naturalistic explanation. They say, well, eventually we'll be able to explain this away with natural causes. Well, this is a deep-seated, stubborn presupposition that miracles do not happen. And when you approach it that way, don't expect faith to happen. Don't expect that God is going to honor that with faith in your life. It's one of the ways of robbing God of the glory. Uh, Another way of robbing God of his glory is to forget to pray or to forget to thank God when he's answered prayer or to forget to speak to others of his glory. Another way to rob it is to say this is just a one-time fluke and uh, fail to trust God again in the future, or to take credit for ourselves. And so if we want faith to grow, we need to give God the glory. Now I want to end with the whole concept of entering into new levels of trust in God's working, because I think uh, all of these points tie together. Look at the last phrase in verse 53. He himself believed and his whole household. Now what's he saying here? Is he saying that he was an unbeliever before this? It can't be, because verse 50 said he believed, and verse 50. And the fact that he came to Jesus in the first place indicates he had believed then. So what I think is happening is that he had faith, but it was a small faith. He had faith to come to Jesus, and he says, Lord, I believe you can heal my son. Would you come? And Jesus challenges his faith to grow higher. He says, okay. I want you to believe that he is healed even though you don't see me coming to your house. He believes, but this is a new level of belief. He goes on, and uh, when he gets this report, it says he believes again. He's entering into a new uh, level of belief. Now, what belief is this? Belief is not something about the past. It's a belief. Faith has to do with the present and the future. If it's already happened, it's nothing to be believed about, right? So it's the present and the future. He's trusting Christ for new things in his life is what is happening here. So there's three levels of faith that he has grown into uh, through these circumstances that God providentially engendered in his life. 
And so he's entering into a walk of life. As we take baby steps of faith and we see God's answers in our lives, it causes us to be strengthened more and more in our, our faith walk. And so we need to be very careful. We do not become comfortable with our past accomplishments of faith and fail to grow. It's constantly stretching forward. Let me read you what happens if we are not stretching our faith. Automatically, our faith becomes weakened. Romans 4.19 says of Abraham, without weakening in his faith, and that's an indication, that was a, an ever-present danger, but he says, without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Your faith is either going forward or it's going backward. It's either being strengthened or it's being weakened. Faith never stays the same. And it's my prayer that as a congregation, as we pray for guidance, as we begin to involve ourselves in various ministries, that we would grow, as the scripture says, from faith to faith and from glory to glory, and uh, that uh, we would find great joy in seeing his vision engendered in our lives. Uh, that quote in your handout says, faith will beget in us three things, vision, venture, victory. May it do all three. Amen. Father, thank you for this, your word, and the challenge it is in our lives. I pray that we would be men, women, children of faith, that you would engender uh, a, a great growth of faith in our, 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 our lives, that we would not be like the wilderness generation of Israelites that lacked faith, refused to enter into Canaan, and as a result were put on the shelf, as it were, were wandering in the wilderness. Help us, Father, to be like that faithful generation with Joshua and Caleb, Caleb, who said, give me this mountain. Father, give each one of us here mountains to conquer by faith. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.